Welcome to School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. I work with programs all over the country as a registered dietitian and school nutrition specialist to save operations time and money on everything from employee training, social media marketing, and wellness programs. Every week, I bring you tips, tricks, and inspiration from fellow professionals in school nutrition and related fields. This week, we have Jennifer McNeil on the show. Jennifer is the founder of Lunch Assist and a former award-winning child nutrition director. Jen previously worked in Encinitas and Hemet Unified School Districts, both in Southern California. She also served as an AmeriCorps service member in San Luis Obispo County on a public health and food systems project. She's passionate about supporting school nutrition professionals with farm to school, scratch cooking, and cutting through the administrative red tape to focus on and what matters most, feeding children well. At Lunch Assist, Jennifer has created a ton of tools for us to use in response to COVID-19. So she's joining us today to share some of that information and some of the positive things and creative things she's been hearing from directors all over the country about how to best manage food service during the crisis. All right, let's get started. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus on the handle business breakfast. You don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. trying to operate as optimally as possible in response to the COVID crisis. So I'm glad you suggested that. I didn't realize you had so much content that you've made available to people to help them navigate through this time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We do a lot of administrative reviews and we're actually still working on some right now with people who are doing the streamlined review, which is so interesting without a site visit. But the majority of our focus the last, gosh, almost two months now has been on COVID and helping support anyone and everyone in school nutrition who is struggling to understand waivers, needing training, just that community support. So yeah, it's been a really interesting time and just encouraging people to to do what they can and to, you know, get through each day, one day at a time and try to, to manage the situation as best we can. Right. How did you end up in school nutrition and developing a company that helps so many different districts? Yeah. So I started as a supervisor in Hemet Unified School District in Southern California back in 2010. I went to that position straight from my dietetic internship at the VA Medical Center in San Diego. And I thought like when I was in my undergrad and going through my internship, I thought I wanted to go to medical school. And I quickly realized after the heavy clinical focus at the VA that I just didn't have the stomach for it. Um, (laughs) I didn't want to be in a hospital. And I had the opportunity to intern with a school district in San Diego and just fell in love like day one, going into the classroom and seeing the kids and working on the salad bar and that kind of stuff. So Yeah, I was really lucky to get a position right away and worked in Hemet and then went to Encinitas. And so I was the 
supervisor and then assistant director and then interim director in Hemet, which is a district where we served like 22,000 meals a day. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, it was like a good sized district. And it was a great time because I started in 2010, just before all the new regulations took place um, with HHFKA. And so it was just the best learning experience. And then I went on to be a director in Encinitas School District, which is just like the cutest little like nine schools near the beach. And we had our own school farm, actually two of them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, very (laughs) different from your first experience. um, A great position. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I had started consulting with California Department of Education, teaching classes and doing little projects with them in uh, 2014. And in 2016, I had the opportunity to relocate. And so I kind of took that opportunity and started Lunch Assist to do a bit more consulting with districts directly. And yeah, it just took off. It's been a great experience. Now I work, I worked in over 50 districts. And right now I have 30 that are current clients. And yeah, I just love them. We work together really closely. And support their programs in whatever way they need support from administrative reviews to menu planning to, you know, that extra person that's been there and you can talk to and can help you with whatever you're going through. And right now that's COVID. (laughs) So yeah, we're trying to understand the situation on the ground as best as possible and create resources that help directors in the way that we know operations need support right now. What are the major concerns you're hearing from clients right now? Things they're trying to understand or things they're trying to create better processes for? I think, you know, I think number one is safety and and staff burnout. I think that that is, is just paramount during this whole crisis, you know, across society really is the safety concerns. So that is something that right away we... We worked with the Center for Eco Literacy, and they have a wonderful person on their team named Layla Mirandi, who has her master's in public health. And we worked with her to create some safety guidelines and also collaborated with some medical doctors and public health professionals in her network. And, you know, it's been really hard to be able to share all that information and get it out in a way that you feel like it's adequate. Cause I just feel like we're always falling short of protecting our teams, but I think people are getting the hang of it. And so that's, I think that's really been the biggest concern is how do we, you know, make sure everyone knows how to do a no contact handoff, make sure not just our team is wearing a face mask when we're serving meals, but like the people who are picking up the meals so that they protect, you know, the school nutrition staff and making sure that you practice social distancing in tiny little kitchens where it can be really next to impossible. So rotating staff so that they don't burn out so that they're not, you know, maybe they're not getting sick with COVID, but they're getting sick because they're working so much and they're just tired. So um, that's been probably the number one concern. And then I would say number two has been budgets and um, financials and how we're going to pay for all of this. And yeah. That's, yeah, that's a huge unknown right now. Those are absolutely relatable. I feel like in our district, we've done a lot better with trying to set things up so that there's minimal contact. But we are noticing that there's some people, even just I had to run errands this weekend. I, unfortunately, my Instacart delivery just it wasn't working out. There's like nothing available. So I had to go to the store myself. And I was blown away by how few people are wearing masks and how 
the store itself made an effort. They put marks on the floor showing how far away customers should be from each other. People, I don't know if they couldn't read it. I know most of them could definitely read it, but people were disregarding that. And then where they had up the plastic shield between the cashier and the customer, a lot of people, mostly unmasked people, were standing beside the shield and talking directly to the cashier. And a couple of people that I saw doing that, the cashier had the mask either over their mouth or their nose, never both. So <laughs> very yeah. disheartening. It's it's funny. You know that there's been training. You know that if their company went through the trouble of putting those physical things in place to help make them compliant, they're concerned about safety. But then individual compliance has been an issue everywhere for everyone. So yeah, lots yeah. of challenges. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that that is, that's happening more often than we realize, you know, and it's, it's really tough, like how to even just explaining how to wear a face mask. That, that right. was one of the big things that we, we've talked about so much and we put some really good educational materials out. And we also worked with a nonprofit called eat real who did some wonderful videos about face mask use and Layla from center for eco literacy and, and my team, we helped with the script. Like, so we kind of wanted to make sure that that script was really simple and easy to understand. And, and still it's, you know, touching the mask in the right places and putting it down and not adjusting it. And I know even for myself, I understand all of that. And I still, if I wear a mask, it, I know I still touch it when I'm not supposed to, and then I'll go wash my hands or use hand sanitizer, but it's really hard. It's not, you know, it's not something that we're used to in the U.S. And it's a huge learning curve to figure all this out together. Yeah, it definitely is. Where can we find those resources you just mentioned? Yeah, so we have all of our resources are posted on our website, uh, which is lunchassist.org. And then the COVID resources are on lunchassist.org slash COVID-19. So yeah, check it out. They're all free for download. And we have them accessible in, in a variety of ways. So there's certain things that you can just download. And then we also have a, a public Google Drive. So you can go grab them from there. And then we're really excited because we have actually a member login now. So it's a, it's a free member login. Um, anyone, anyone can be a member of Lunch Assist. And what's great about that is our website has more capability when you log in. Then you can actually watch videos and have quizzes and have downloadable resources from our community calls, which we host every Thursday. So we do about a one-hour call with the Center for Eco Literacy every Thursday. And those resources are posted in multiple places, but one of them through that login that login page. And then we also have a training video that people can go in and access a COVID-19 training. And then it has a quiz and downloadable resources. So it's really nicely organized under the membership interface. And then you can also access most of those from the Google Drive as well. Awesome. Perfect. And I'll include all those in the show notes. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the 20 waivers that are available right now. I don't know if it's more than 20 since we last spoke. So how do we navigate all of those? What are the pros and cons? Break down these waivers for us. 
Yeah. And I'm going to pull up my waiver packet because that is how easily understandable they are. We originally wanted to create basically a one page infographic <laughs> for the waivers, which was like a really lofty idea. Um, <laughs> that was very realize. optimistic of y'all. Yes. <laughs> very, very optimistic. So of course, that one page is now, gosh, I don't even know. I'll tell you in a moment. And it's, yeah, there's a, there's actually 21 waivers as of, oh. I looked a couple days ago. So I haven't looked this morning to see. But the interesting thing is now we're getting into more waivers that are basically duplicates of the original waivers. So what USDA is doing is rather than just extending the deadline, they are, instead of extending waivers that might expire on June 30th, they're actually, and then, you know, extending the date, just modifying that waiver. Instead of doing that, they're actually issuing new waivers that kind of take place starting July 1st through September 30th. The waiver packet is 111 pages. <laughs> the summary is not that long, but we oh, okay, included okay. in our PDF that all the waivers as well. So people have them for reference in one okay. place. Okay, um, that's helpful. So the USDA waivers, it looks like, so the first nationwide waivers were released on March 20th. And then we have the most recent waiver, we have number 21. So that was released, you know, just a couple weeks ago. And so there's a lot to keep track of now. And yeah, it's not very easy to kind of summarize these. But what we've done is we've created an infographic and that goes through each waiver, which is great. And it just gives you like a little snapshot and then a to do like, what do you need to do? So in pretty much every case, you want to check with your state agency first to make sure they've adopted or elected to use the waiver. So there's 21, but um, especially the last few, like number 13 through 21, not every state has elected to use those quite yet. So that can be a little bit confusing. Right. And I think as a general rule, anything coming from the federal level may or may not apply locally. So, of course, you can't be more lax than the federal guidelines, but you can always be more stringent if you would like. So, as a rule, you must always check with your state agency. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because the waivers, so some of these are new, like new concepts, right? Some of these more recent ones, number 13 through 21, have things that we haven't seen before. Like, for instance, the school wellness policy assessment, which was supposed to be due June 30th of this year, if you haven't done it yet. You can get an extension for next year um, to be able to turn that in June 30th of 2021. So that's that's a new concept. That's waiver number 18. But for instance, waiver number 17 is exactly the same as waiver number one. It's a meal service time extension. So it allows you, that's how we have the ability to serve breakfast and lunch at the same time, which is great. That's how we've been doing right. our grab and go meals, right? Like we all are familiar with that. And that waiver number 17 extends that to September 30th. That's the only difference, except the original waiver included CACFP. And this 
doesn't specifically name CACFP. So if your so, program is funded by CACFP and not NSLP, then you just need to wait and see. Like assume that the first date that you were given is as far as you can take that for now. Exactly. And that's one of the waivers that I thought was really great was waiver number 21. And again, with all these check to see if your state has elected to use this, but this is basically waiver number 21 is about unanticipated closures. So for a lot of us, our school year might be ending. I mean, I think some people are ending school around the end of May, early June, but our existing waivers, most of them go through June 30th. And I think a lot more people this year are going to be wanting to serve over the summer to help serve that need in their community with the economic crisis, right? There's a lot more need for, for meals right now. So unfortunately, most of the waivers haven't been extended into July and August. But waiver number 21 allows you to keep kind of serving status quo right now past your last day of school until June 30th. Oh, okay. Helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. So, cause previously everything was for unanticipated closures, right? So it was like, it extends June 30 to June 30th, but it was supposed to end when your last day of school ended. So if you ended May 20th, then there wasn't really a lot of good guidance on what to do between May 20th and June 30th. Right. Okay. So, or between your last day of school and the last day of June. So now waiver 21, if your state has elected to use it, essentially you can just operate as usual until June 30th. And then hopefully, I mean, we're really, really hopeful that all the waivers will just be simply extended through September 30th. So that would allow people to operate in their summer programs under the current flexibilities. And there's lots of groups working on that. I know the No Kid Hungry campaign from Share Our Strength, they put out um, a letter, an advocacy letter that was signed by many organizations asking USDA to extend all of these waivers. And I know a lot of the state agencies have been asking USDA to just simply extend everything. So yeah, our our little waiver packet kind of gives you just like a real short and sweet for every single waiver. So I encourage you to take a look at that and then know that there's a lot of people working on making this continue, you know, as long as we need it to. Okay. So that's exciting that there's a lot of advocacy work going on right now specific to what we need Presently, I know there are always people trying to advocate for us so that our programs are more efficient and we can serve more children. Aside from looking for extensions, what else is going on on an advocacy level? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a lot of people advocating. And I know specifically, I've recently spoken to Liz Campbell, who works in Washington, D.C. for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And she's working really hard meeting with congressional aides and, you know, advocating for our industry to have specifically the funds that we need. So they have a big ask that was recently signed. It was also a letter that was put together with not just A&D, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but also the School Nutrition Association, Urban School Food Alliance and about 30 plus other organizations signed on to this letter asking for at least 2.6 billion with a B for school nutrition programs to help cover the deficit between 
March and June of 2020. So that difference in the reimbursement that many of us won't be getting because our participation, although we have, you know, a lot more on our plate, more safety concerns, no offer versus serve, so more food to prep and buy. It's, you know, not everyone has the same participation. And in fact, a lot of people are running, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40% of normal. So right. there's going to be a big deficit. And a lot of folks are still paying all of their staff, which is great, you know, that everyone in our industry, for the most part, still has a job right now, but may not be working. So that's a huge burden on our on our school nutrition budget. So that 2.6 billion was asked to to help cover that deficit. We don't know what that's going to look like. It sounds like there's going to be an interesting formula <laughs> to figure out um, what that looks like and we're not sure that, you know, schools are going to get exactly what they would have before the crisis, but like as far as math one of the big requests that makes total sense would have been to match your 2019 reimbursement. So right. if we all could just get like the reimbursement we got in 2019 and 2020 and just kind of like match that, but that's apparently not necessarily a super popular idea um, oh, on the okay. Hill. So, <laughs> and I can understand why, because some programs who may not be serving at all, then, you know, that does that, do they really need that? So we need to have some way of figuring out, you know, how to match what people need. And I'm sure it's going to like whatever they come up with, you know, it's going to fall short, it's going to leave someone out. And there's still no discussions about how to make up a la carte or paid meal income. I don't think that that's really going to be addressed. Right. It's difficult. It's difficult because money doesn't grow on trees. But if you don't retain your staff. One, we will need them once we get participation back up and we would pay for them to move on to new opportunities and never come back because we showed no loyalty to our employees, right? So that's one factor. But then two, you don't want to add to the amount of hunger in your community by laying off people who are ready and willing to work and doing a great job. So that's the lot. We haven't even discussed the possibility of reducing staff, but, you know, we're only a few months into this. We would hate to reach a breaking point where we just don't even know what to do. Yeah, I think it's, it's a big concern. And there are some strategies that we've kind of, so uh, like with our community calls, we've kind of um, created this, this nice little community. And I've been chatting to a lot of people in both the Lunch Assist and the Center for Eco Literacy Networks, which combined is about 130 school districts. So we've talked to a lot of people in that network. And that's just the snapshot of kind of, you know, a group of school districts in California specifically. But one thing that has been seeming to be really helpful for participation lately has been cutting down service to just a few days per week, even just one day per week. Because especially with things opening back up and parents needing to go back to work, people are not as, it's not as easy. It doesn't seem for folks to get out to meal service sites every single day. So when um, we've seen some school districts doing, like for instance, North Monterey School District uh, on the coast of California, their director, Sarah Doherty, she is doing a five-day meal kit. 
and parents can pick up either at noon or midday, or they can do a pickup in the evening. So they can pick, and she's a, a community eligibility provision district, but she's using a POS during this time because to make sure that there's not duplicate meals being passed out. So she has that accountability piece because she's offering like midday pickup or evening pickup. But it's it's worked really well in her community. Her participation is the same as during the school year. And because it seems like, and there's a few other examples like that, but it seems like during the, you know, if folks have just one day that they have to focus on getting out there and, and picking up the meals or for children to come and grab the box of, of food and it, it's just a bit easier right now with people going back to work. And in her community specifically, she's in a big agricultural community and there's a lot of people who work on the farms. And so a daily pickup is just, it's really difficult it's on much. those families. Yeah, it's too much. Right. And so just one day a week, it works really well. And it's like a big motivator for people to come out. And, and then she's also been able to combine that with the flexibility so also included in that waiver packet we mentioned earlier, we have PDFs of all the original waivers and the Q&A memos. And in one of the Q&A memos, we recently got flexibility to be able to do more bulk items, right? So not, not necessarily having to do everything unitized, but we can do bulk. And if you combine that with the meal pattern waiver, when you do like a five-day meal kit, you can do bulk like a head of broccoli and a pint of cherry tomatoes and so she's doing things like that in her meal kits and so are some other people. And it, it just works really well. It seems like a bit more a bit more useful for families rather than coming out every single day. Yeah. And and if we think about it for the, the children who are doing distance learning right now, who, you know, have their assignments online to come out in the middle of the day and drive and go go get lunch every single day. If it's not real close to their house, that could also be a disruption. So if you can send that home that food home one day a week or two days a week, then it seems to help with participation. And it might also be like more helpful for the students doing learning and the families going back to work. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I, we've gotten ours down to twice a week, but I wonder if, have you noticed a big difference depending on the layout of the district? Like if it's rural, everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but it seems like in some areas you must have a car. It's understood. Everything's spread out. And then in other areas where you typically can get the bus or you can walk and things are close together, seems like some of those cities are struggling because not everybody has a car because before now you didn't necessarily need one. Have you heard creative solutions in that situation as well? Well, I know like there's definitely in California, it's you know, the automobile is king. <laughs> There's a, definitely most places you have to drive. If it's not necessarily too far, it's not really safe to walk. So the lack of sidewalks and walkability factors in many communities across California. But there are places that that there are, are people don't have cars and they are getting to access meal sites pretty easily, such as in San Francisco. So San Francisco Unified is pretty densely populated and they are serving every day and it's primarily walk-up service. So I think it, it really varies by community. And even in the suburban areas, most of the schools that I've talked to, they still offer a walk-up meal service. So they have the drive-through running in mm -hmm. their bus loop or something like that. And then they have, you know, families are still able to 
to walk and pick up, but it's a huge barrier. And I think it gets, it gets to be a bigger barrier in rural communities where it's just more difficult, takes more time, you know, the school may be further away. And Mm. we have seen many of those areas doing delivery of meals. Like uh, Mm -hmm. partnering with other community organizations or something and delivering to multiple sites. Some, some, yes. So some partnering with community organizations. I know one district is partnering with a community group that has a nonprofit that has agreed to go to different apartment complexes uh, that are in a a bit like removed from where the school is and deliver meals directly to them. And also delivering to some areas where there's homeless families Mm -hmm. and they definitely don't have a vehicle and they need that support more than anyone else. Right. And then also some school districts partnering with their transportation department. So having the bus drivers help deliver and like a bus driver and a nutrition services staff member will go together and they'll, they'll drive the normal bus loop and stop at each bus stop. And so the families can come out and they get their meal and they get also, that's how the district is distributing learning materials and other resources to those families. Yeah, that's really smart. We're working with our transportation department now, but they're all still on contract. Their contract will be over once we get to the end of the school year. So it's been an awesome resource during the year. We were all imagining that this would be over. I don't know why we were all so (laughs) optimistic a few months ago. Uh, Now that it's obviously not the case, we're working on plan B, reducing, you know, the effort that we expect our parents to be able to put in, not even effort, just the time sacrifice, because during the business day is when we'll be out there. And that's definitely a conflict. So we don't want for them to have to choose between going to work and having food. Yeah, especially for folks who like in this job market, you know, there's so many people unemployed, but the people who do have jobs, I'm sure will feel a lot of pressure to, to do everything they can to be there and to keep their their job. And absolutely. We, yeah, we need to make it easier on parents to be able to, you know, meet all of their obligations as a parent and as a worker. Exactly. And then a lot of people who usually get help from other family members we're trying not to have a lot of contact with each other right now. So in the past, you know, if you it takes a village, you used to apply and you have an aunt who could take the kids or your grandma could do it. And now they probably shouldn't be doing that at all. So that's a whole nother thing. But it's been very helpful hearing what other school districts are doing to make this work. So thank you for all of those. When it comes to trying to mitigate the financial loss, what are some things that we should be looking at? I mean, honestly, I think the biggest thing is that like we are not going to be able to mitigate it on our own. We need we need support from the federal government, not even from the states. I mean, the states do not have the money to cover all of this and it has to come from the federal government. And USDA already had it in their budget this year to pay us, you know, that same amount that we we got in 2019. So it's been earmarked in the federal budget, but unfortunately our program is based on reimbursement. So the current model doesn't allow USDA necessarily to pay us the exact same if we didn't serve the exact same number of meals. 
I think that's that's the first and foremost. We're not going to be able to do it on, on our own. But that said, you know, trying to get our participation up, that's that's going to help. Looking at utilizing products that are in our current inventory. So I think at first, a lot of us, again, thinking that maybe things wouldn't last quite as long as they have. A lot of people ordered in, you know, shelf-stable items and things that were like really easy to distribute. But it's it's important to move that existing inventory as best you can. So sending home even like individually wrapped frozen items, those can be sent home with proper cooking instructions. And of course, also giving families the option if they don't have cooking facilities to have an alternative. But many districts are doing that. And and most families are happy to receive those items with cooking instructions. So that and that's allowable. Mm -hmm. I think that can really help if you can just draw down your inventory and and move that product. And also trying to utilize, you know, like you guys are staff from other departments, if they're already being paid through the through the district, trying right. to bring in folks like that, that can help right now. But yeah, the, definitely the amount that we're getting for reimbursement right now, it's, it's not enough to cover meals that don't have offer versus serve. I mean, most of right. us are used to only 60% of our kids taking milk, not 100, you know, yeah. or, you know, everyone takes a fruit or a vegetable, but not both. Yeah, and that's a that's huge difference. Right. And it's sad, too, yeah. because, you know, that customer satisfaction is going to be down because the kids are also used to having a lot of choices beyond OVS, but also having choice. And now it's just, you know, whatever we planned for the day is what you're getting. Yeah, that's true, right? It's not like, <laughs> yeah, it's whatever we planned on our menu and whatever we have in our inventory, maybe, or whatever we can get because yeah. there's supply chain shortages. And I think that's the great thing about the meal pattern waiver. So, and the meal pattern waiver has been extended until May 31st. And we're really pushing for that to get extended I mean, I think the meal pattern waiver should be probably extended all year next year because the We're supply have more chain shortages. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I I encourage people. You know, of course, you want to to do your best to serve a compliant meal. And and I'm the first person. I mean, that's that's like my bread and butter is helping people be compliant and plan good menus. And and you know, but at a time like this. I think we just all need to use whatever flexibility we have and utilize that meal pattern waiver to, to move the product that you have on hand and to be smart about, you know, how you're planning those meals so that you don't, you're not so stuck in, in the actual like meal pattern right now, you can use that flexibility to work around it. Yeah. I know for us, as long as we can document that there was just absolutely no way to get the item, it's been no problem to use that. But overall, we still are able to, even if we have to pay more for the products. Unfortunately, that's like not another reason not to do it, even though we keep looking at our budget. I think as things go on, we may see that things get even more flexible. It just depends yeah. on how long this goes. And 
all people can do is their best with what they know right now. And none of us know how long this is going to be. And that really has a major influence on what is the right thing to do. It really depends on how long this is going to last. But then none of us know the answer to that question. So, yeah, we're just like in the dark right now trying to figure out what's best. But it's good to see the cooperation we're getting from the state and even from the USDA. Everybody's trying, but we're all operating with such limited information because nobody has a crystal ball, which is what we really are missing right now. That's what we all need is a crystal yeah. ball. <laughs> <laughs> now, when it comes to the fresh fruit and vegetable program, I think that for me was a little confusing. I think at first, a lot of us assumed some things about how we could move forward with what we had for FFVP. Can you explain what the actual clarification was? Yeah, so unfortunately, the FFVP was not included in the flexibilities. It's not one of the programs that we're allowed to have waivers for. So that is very unfortunate. But there has been a Q&A memo, which we are, we included at the back of our waiver packet, just because it's not a waiver, but it's, it's one of the Q&As. So there's a Q&A on the FFVP during coronavirus. And There are a few workarounds. So unfortunately, there's, you know, you have to, you can only serve FFVP at the original site where it was approved. And if that's not a feeding site for you, then I don't know of any workaround. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If anyone has thought of something, you know, let us know. But we, we haven't figured out a compliant way to get into that. And there's also some downsides. So I'm just starting with the negative. You can't provide the FFVP to parents. So we have the parent meal pickup waiver, but you, yeah, it doesn't apply to FFVP. So you can have those servings of FFVP at your grab and go meal sites, but it, it has to be given to a student or like a parent that has a student with them or a child. It's not allowable to, to just give that to a parent. So those are probably the, the biggest downsides. In addition, the funding needs to be still spent by June 30th. So there's yeah. been no extension on that. But I was really happy to see some, some schools getting really creative working with local farmers. So uh, Lodi Unified School District, which is in a really good area for wine south of Sacramento, <laughs> They have a a great solution that they've come up with food for thought that's a local farmer and they are creating little boxes or bags of produce for the week. So that is allowable. You can do all of your FFVP servings for the week at one time and hand those out to the, the students as they come to pick up meals. So that's a, that's one way to get all that food out like at one time. Yeah. And if you're doing meal sites that have higher participation that because of the single day pickup, you can, you're not just limited to a one day pickup with that. And yeah, so that's, that's one way to spend those funds. I thought and was really how creative. would that affect your funding maybe for the following year? Is it going to be an issue if you're not able to use those funds or could it potentially be, I guess things may change. I know like historically, if you don't spend FFVP funds, it's a problem, but I'm hopeful that that will be something that obviously like we'll USDA understands. Yeah. And, and I know like from one of the webinars that I was on with USDA, they, 
they fully acknowledge that this is a huge gap and it's a problem. So, you know, I'm hopeful that they could just simply waive any penalty so that districts who've had FFVP year to year can continue to offer that program. The way things were set up were just fine. It's just... It's just so funny because we don't have that flexibility on a dime. That's just not the way government works here. Probably doesn't work that way anywhere. Everything is a process. And to have a situation where we need things to change within a few weeks or within a month or so, that is just not how we do things. And so it's understandable that there are a lot of things that there are gaps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, a lot of so we had certain things that were set up by USDA that were, you know, designed to be uh, so that schools could respond to disasters that maybe lasted a week or exactly. two weeks. But I don't think anyone ever planned ahead for a disaster like this that has lasted. You know, it's looking like this is going to be definitely into next school year, if not the whole school year. So you know, we're potentially looking at 18 months or more. And I know no one really wants to think about that. But, you know, it, it's really tough. And it it would be really nice if we could get some more flexibility for long term planning, because I know so many people have been emailing me and asking me like, Jen, what do I do for summer? Like, what do I do for fall? Like, right. So so what's gonna what is what is it going to look like when the kids come back in the fall? And, And that's another crystal ball. answer that I don't have. (laughs) That's what I keep asking since I do most of the menu planning. We usually do it as a team, but I'm supposed to head the team. And I'm like, there's certain things I, I can't, I'm stuck until I know the answer to certain questions. And then everyone who goes to the meetings with the board and the superintendent, I keep asking like, are they coming back? Like, are the kids even coming back? And we still haven't gotten an answer. So, and it is, May 10th. And in a normal year, that would be crazy that I don't have the plan for August yet because our managers are slated to leave at the end of May and we would want all of their orders in based on their projections before they leave so that when they come back, there's no gap and we have all the ordering done and everything. But why would we order for kids coming into the cafeteria and getting food off of the line when chances are, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen, but we don't even know if they would maybe be alternating days because how would they space out from each other? The number of students that we have in every building right now, it wouldn't be possible. So are they going to stagger them? Uh, is the week going to be long? Like who knows? So I know they're yeah. tired of me asking. <laughs> I don't envy you in your position, Dahlia. <laughs> you like, once we finally get the answer, I'll feel so much better. But this is an exercise in learning how to problem solve and how to just do the best you can with what you have from working with the inventory that you have, working with the staff that is able to come in. Because there are plenty of people who right now can't come in because they don't have any childcare. Because yeah. all the daycares are closed and they have to stay home. And it's just, this is an opportunity for growth. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what nutrition professionals, school nutrition professionals specifically, that's what we do best. I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the years we've, we've talked about that, do what we can with what we have, you know, like we really want to do this, but we're going to do 
we're going to do that because that's what we have available to us. And we're going to make it work. And we're going to, you know, feed the kids under extenuating circumstances. We've all been there before. And, you know, you and I haven't even been in the industry as long as so many of those who have way more experience than us in adapting to crises and challenges and storms and floods and fires and tornadoes. (laughs) Now we've just got a plague on our hands. So (laughs) add it to the list of what you know, exactly. can do. <laughs> I do, I do see that the really experienced employees are like, yeah, we're just gonna, you know, one day at a time, baby, one day at a time, we're just going to keep it going. So that's what I'm trying to focus on. They've been through so much. We can handle this as well. Now, when it comes to making emergency purchases, that's something too, that I think we need a little bit of clarification on. If we aren't able to operate with our bid process like we usually thought, or we find ourselves in a pinch and we really need something. Can you review the rules about micro-purchasing? Yeah, definitely take advantage of micro-purchasing. And and again, all of these rules can vary by state. So the federal rules basically allow you to purchase, you can use micro-purchasing up to $10,000. And so that's something that you have that flexibility to spend up to $10,000 with a vendor without getting quotes, without cost comparison, anything like that. The only thing you have to be careful of is if it's more than one purchase, then you need to divide that equitably amongst similar suppliers that would be similar. So for instance, if you need to purchase PPE, like face masks, you could spend, and let's say you need your first purchase is $8,000. And so you you purchase that under micro-purchase, you were in a pinch, in a hurry, you needed to get it out, go ahead and, and purchase that. Now, the next time you need to purchase, if if it either you need to consider doing a small purchase or if there's another supplier that you can go to, you should spread that equitably amongst similar suppliers. So that's also true for like, right now we've seen so many local farmers having an abundance of produce. And that's something that you can definitely purchase without going out to bid or solicitation if you can get it within the micro purchase threshold. So feel free to, you know, if you have two or three local farmers, you can just start dividing purchases equitably between them. Or if it's just a one-time purchase, go ahead and purchase it as long as it's under $10,000. The other thing that we have the ability to utilize right now is emergency procurement. So There's not a lot of information out there on emergency procurement, but we're in a disaster. And I mean, again, check with your state. I know in California, they've determined right now you can use emergency procurement. So any purchases during this time, if you're not able to go out to bid for, then you can utilize emergency procurement to to get those without a formal procurement process. That's really helpful. And yes, thank you for the reminders that we have to check and see exactly what the guidelines are in our With your individual state, yeah. areas. Yeah, because yeah, like the dollar amounts vary by state. I know, for instance, California used to have a very specific level for our state. And then in August of 2018, they just went with the federal level. So it's, okay. you know, it just varies everywhere. But, but over 10000 if you have the bandwidth, you should do a small purchase. Um, process. So small purchase involves just getting three quotes. So it's it's not really that complicated. If it's a food 
solicitation, you should have by American language in that solicitation, but it's not a bid. It's just quotes and a price check. But again, kind of utilize the flexibility you have. And if you don't have the bandwidth to even do a small purchase, then then you might want to just use emergency procurement or micro purchase procurement right now. So keep those in the back of your head and, and, and then just kind of like email your state to make sure that that is relevant for you and your program. Right. That makes sense. Everyone pretty much has someone from the state office that's assigned to them. That's easy to get in touch with. And yeah, so I would definitely check with them and see what you need to do to make the right decision. So yeah, I'm sure at some point we will have to answer for the decisions that we're making now. Well, and that's, that's a good point because you do have procurement reviews and I've been through many procurement reviews over the past couple of years and they are not the most fun review. There's a lot of rules that we're not necessarily used to with procurement. And, you know, I don't know how those, so anyone who gets reviewed in, if you get a procurement review in school year 2021, they will be looking at this period. And with there not being a whole lot of good information out there on emergency procurement, again, just all the more reason to like, Talk to your state agency, maybe communicate with them via email so that you have that documentation in case of a future review. And I even think with so much going on right now, even for your own memory, if you're asked to explain a decision (laughs) later, absolutely. (laughs) what are the chances that you'll know why you did what you did? So if you can't explain it to yourself, uh, good luck explaining that to your reviewer. So yeah, that's a really great tip. What are some of the leadership qualities that you've noticed have been useful to people during this time? Just handling all of the decisions that they have to make and keeping their teams cohesive, maybe communicating with people who aren't physically in the office. What are some of the keys? So we have some really great leadership resources on our website. That's part of our COVID-19 resources. And those were developed by Mackenzie Lopez, who is our administrative dietitian for lunch assist. And she's just like such a little guru with, with all the management stuff. She has a business degree and she used to work at Stanford university and she's um, also a dietitian, but she, she's come up with some really great little single page checklists and, and good reminders for all of us who are leading teams at this time. So Some of the suggestions that she's come up with have also been sourced from Harvard Business Review and some of the the really top like journals on business and that have specifically been putting out articles regarding how to lead during a pandemic. Like, what do you do during a crisis specifically? And none of us have training on that, right? Like, it's a completely different situation than we've we've all learned how to, to lead and manage or even working together with others, like if we're not necessarily a supervisor, but we're all team members. And so we can all be leaders in whatever role we serve. I think communication is the biggest thing that we've noticed. Communication, not just verbally, but being there, you know, like if you can get around, even though we need to minimize contact, if we're working on a team, it's also really important that we go out and see the sites where our food is being served and making sure our teams are supported and checked in with and communicating remotely if you need to. Like a lot of folks are doing daily meetings, like just a quick five minute huddle 
six feet apart from each other. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, just to check in and make sure everyone's feeling okay. You know, is there something that happened on our last service day that we need to talk about that we need to fix any concerns that have come up? So right now, I think communication is the biggest thing, because that also, if you have open lines of communication, then people are able to bring up concerns about safety. And I mean, that in itself has been proven in the airline industry to help mitigate plane crashes, like Hmm. co-pilots that feel like they can have open lines of communication with the pilot. Those airlines have less plane crashes. So if we think about applying that to our industry, if we if we open up those lines of communication up and down the hierarchy and allow everyone to have an equal voice, we're going to all be better for it. Our kids are going to be safer. Our team's going to be safer. And we're going to have a more cohesive workplace. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else you'd really like to share with everyone out there? Well, you know, I actually pulled up this quote when we were just talking about this being like a growth experience, right? So there's a quote from Rahm Emanuel, who is the former mayor of Chicago, And his quote is, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you you thought you could not do before. This is a serious crisis that we're in. And I think that a lot of us have the opportunity to get something good out of this. So whether that's like a more cohesive team that we build and more trust with our staff and our community, whether it's increasing the perception of school meals. Like right now, there's so many good news stories in the media about school nutrition that we can really ride that wave and help that promote that integrity and elevate our profession. Or just, you know, utilizing this as an opportunity to show families that we're there for them and we care about them and and make that contact with parents where the kids have known that, but maybe the parents haven't seen us firsthand and, and how special our teams are out in the field. So yeah, never let a good crisis go to go to waste. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you are doing, feeding your community and, and your kids and, and everyone who's listening. I'm so, so impressed with the, the good that everyone's doing out there. And um, at Lunch Assist, we're, we're just happy to help in some small way. And yeah, just happy to connect. So take care, you guys. And, and thanks for everyone's hard work. That's perfect. I so appreciate Jennifer taking up the time to share this information with us. Make sure you check out the resources on the site. And if you have any creative solutions that you would like to share with the rest of us, please reach out to us on social media. I'm at School Nutrition RD on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Next week, we will be focusing on individual stress management and coping tools as we move through this difficult time. As always, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next week.